0: Hello and welcome to Newman's Thoughts, a multimedia reading project from the Newman Institute for Catholic Thought and Culture to promote the thoughts and ideas of our patron saint John Henry Newman. I'm Patrick Callahan, director of the Newman Institute. Today is Day 18 and I'm reading Section 5 of Discourse Two to St. John Henry Newman's The Idea of a University. I'm using the Clooney Media edition of The Idea of a University. You can follow along with this or any other edition or even online via our daily email. St. John Henry Newman, The Idea of a University, Discourse 2, Theology, a Branch of Knowledge, Section 5. Now, in illustration of what I've been saying, I will appeal, in the first place, to a statesman, but not merely so, to no mere politician, no trader in places or in votes or in the stock market, but to a philosopher, to an orator, to one whose profession, whose aim has ever been to cultivate the fair, the noble, and the generous. I cannot forget the celebrated discourse of the celebrated man. To whom I am referring, a man who is first in his peculiar walk, and who, moreover, which is much to my purpose, has had a share, as much as anyone alive, in effecting the public recognition in these islands of the principle of separating secular and religious knowledge. This brilliant thinker, during the years in which he was exerting himself in behalf of this principle, made a speech or discourse on occasion of a public solemnity, and in reference to the bearing of general knowledge upon religious belief, he spoke as follows. As men, he said, will no longer suffer themselves to be led blindfold in ignorance, so will they no more yield to the vile principle of judging and treating their fellow creatures, not according to the intrinsic merit of their actions, but according to the accidental and involuntary coincidence of their opinions. The great truth has finally gone forth to the ends of all the earth, and he prints it in capital letters, that man shall no more render account to man for his belief, over which he has himself no control." Henceforward, nothing shall prevail upon us to praise or to blame anyone for that which he can no more change than he can the hue of his skin or the height of his stature. You see, gentlemen, if this philosopher is to decide the matter, religious ideas are just as far from being real or representing anything beyond themselves, are as true peculiarities, idiosyncrasies, accidents of the individual, as his having the stature of a Patagonian or the features of a Negro. But perhaps this was the rhetoric of an excited moment. Far from it, gentlemen, or I should not have fastened on the words of a fertile mind, uttered so long ago. What Mr. Brougham laid down as a principle in 1825 resounds on all sides of us, with ever growing confidence and success, in 1852. I open the minutes of the Committee of Council on Education for the years 1848 to 1850, presented to both Houses of Parliament by command of Her Majesty, and I find one of Her Majesty's inspectors of schools at page 467 of the second volume, dividing the topics usually embraced in the better class of primary schools into four, the knowledge of signs as reading and writing, of facts as geography and astronomy, of relations and laws as mathematics, and lastly, sentiment, such as poetry and music. Now, on first catching sight of this division, it occurred to me to ask myself, before ascertaining the writer's own resolution of the matter, under which of these four heads would fall religion, or whether it fell under any of them? Did he put it aside as a thing too delicate and sacred to be enumerated with earthly studies? Or did he distinctly contemplate it when he made his division? Anyhow, I could really find a place for it under the first or the second or the third, for it has to do with facts, since it tells of the self-subsisting. It has to do with relations, for it tells of the Creator. It has to do with signs, for it tells of the due manner of speaking of him there was just one head of the division to which I could not refer it, namely to sentiment. For I suppose music and poetry, which are the writer's own example of sentiment, have not much to do with truth, which is the main object of religion. Judge then my surprise, gentlemen, when I found the fourth was the very head selected by the writer of the report in question, as the special receptacle of religious topics. The inculcation of sentiment, he says, embraces reading in its higher sense, poetry, music, together with moral and religious education. I am far from introducing this writer for his own sake, because I have no wish to hurt the feelings of a gentleman, who is but exerting himself zealously in the discharge of anxious duties. But taking him as an illustration of the widespreading school of thought to which he belongs, I ask what can more clearly prove than a candid avowal like this, that in the view of his school, religion is not knowledge, has nothing whatever to do with knowledge, and is excluded from a university course of instruction, not simply because the exclusion cannot be helped from political or social obstacles, but because it has no business there at all, because it is to be considered a taste, sentiment, opinion, and nothing more. The writer avows this conclusion himself, in the explanation to which he presently enters, in which he says, According to the classification proposed, the essential idea of all religious education will consist in the direct cultivation of the feelings, what we contemplate then, what we aim at, When we give a religious education, is, it seems, not to impart any knowledge whatever, but to satisfy anyhow desires after the unseen, which will arise in our minds in spite of ourselves, to provide the mind with a means of self-command, to impress on it the beautiful ideas which saints and sages have struck out, to embellish it with the bright hues of a celestial piety, to teach it the poetry of devotion, the music of well-ordered affections, and the luxury of doing good. As for the intellect, its exercise happens to be unavoidable whenever moral impressions are made for the constitution of the human mind, but it varies in the results of that exercise, in the conclusions which it draws from our impressions according to the peculiarities of the individual. Something like this seems to be the writer's meaning, but we need not pry into its finer issues in order to gain a distinct view of its general bearing. And taking it, as I think we fairly may take it, as a specimen of the philosophy of the day, as adopted by those who are not conscious unbelievers or open scoffers. I consider it amply explains how it comes to pass that this day's philosophy sets up a system of universal knowledge and teaches of plants and earths and creeping things and beasts and gases, about the crust of the earth and the changes of the atmosphere, about sun, moon, and stars, about man and his doings, about the history of the world, about sensation, memory, and the passions, about duty, about cause and effect, about all things imaginable except one. And that is about him that made all these things, about God. I say the reason is plain, because they consider knowledge as regards the creature is illimitable, but impossible or hopeless as regards the being and attributes and works of the Creator. Thanks for listening to Newman's Thoughts. To discover more about today's readings or to download this season's reading guide, visit www. NewmansThoughts.com. This has been a production of the Newman Institute for Catholic Thought and Culture, an Apostle of the Diocese of Lincoln in partnership with St. Gregory the Great Seminary and the UNL Newman Center, St. Thomas Aquinas Church.